Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. Off the beaten path and into the woods. Every once in a while, my granddaughter, Wren, asked me to sit with her and reread one of the well-worn stories from our giant paperback copy of The Complete Fairy Tales of the Brothers Grimm, a thick academic copy her mother was forced to read in order to complete her master's degree in creative writing. 756 pages of close-to-the-source, hardly sanitized, often grim tales with titles like The Iron Stove, The Worn-Out Shoes, and The Young Man Who Went Out in Search of Fear. And who could forget the classic tale, How Some Children Played at Slaughtering. <laughs> By the way, my Milwaukee childhood memories includes being handed a free intestine-sheathed wiener across a butcher's glass countertop by a smiling aproned sales clerk. Meanwhile, cheerful cartoon depictions of the many stages of pig slaughtering hovered above. They would have made perfect illustrations for children's books under the title, How Some Children Played at Slaughtering. If I close my eyes, I can still see the cartoon blood draining from the cartoon pigs uh, while feeling the satisfying pop my teeth made while I chewed a hot dog, and following the arc of the story across the three walls of the butcher shop, viewing it a bit like I did the back of a box of Captain Crunch. But I digress. This is, after all, a day featuring creative nonfiction, memoir, and nearly free verse from our plucky FUS writing group, Write About It. When Ren and I sit down to read, it doesn't really seem to matter how dark or light the story is or how cleverly written, only that it deals in the kind of dark matter that rattles around in our subconscious minds, witchy, jealous humans who cast the innocent into dark forests, clever and kindly animal siblings who protect and defend us, a house or a home or comfort at the end of a long journey, suddenly remembered as both a blessing and a birthright at the end of a good story. Granddaughter Ren and I sit and cuddle and bond as the stories wash over us, feeling our deep need to bear witness to the good, the bad, and the ugliness of life. Then we quietly absorb their layered meanings into our awe-filled souls and feel more prepared to enter into the woods of life again. It does not surprise me then that I experience that same kind of awe, comfort, and fortification of the soul during our weekly write about it meetings. They began under Jim Fody's gentle guidance and at the prompting of a friend of his early in the pandemic. You should be writing about it, she told him. Everyone should be. And so some of us did and continue to low these last 200 Mondays and counting. And today, our little intrepid group of writers will lead you off the beaten path and deeply into the woods that surround the lives of some of your fellow FUSers. The 17 or so little dwarfs who have participated in Write About It over these last few years now invite you to listen or to visit the lovely little cottage in the woods that they've stumbled onto while following the breadcrumbs of our own lived experiences. Snap off a piece of gingerbread and take a bite. We promise not to eat you. So this is from 
the book I mentioned earlier, Between the Listening and the Telling, How Stories Can Save Us by Mark Iaconelli. There are moments, often unexpected, when you find yourself at home in life, in your life. Simple, gentle, ordinary moments, standing at the kitchen window, rain outside, the earth springing into green and yellow, the birds, ridiculous birds, singing without worry beneath the gray sky. For some reason, without effort, the anxiety lifts, your chest relaxes, your senses awaken, a quiet descends, and you are home. It is moments like this when I can feel how distant I have been from the life I long to live. I have been homesick and I didn't know it. I have been living miles away from my deepest yearnings and not known it. I have been hurrying through my days isolated, fragmented, caught within the jet stream of the anxious world. Only now, in the waking stupor, do I feel the alienation and loss like a sobering drunk ask, how long was I out? Months is the reply, other times years. I used to sometimes sense in the conversation with friends, in the movies, books, stories we consumed, an unspoken longing for some kind of great disruption, a disaster, an upheaval, some systemic breakdown, cell towers toppled, the internet shorted out, highways blocked, the human force would stop. It was a fantasy, of course, but one that revealed a kind of helpless despair at the lives we find ourselves compelled to live. It came from an unconscious understanding that our way of life was destructive and unsustainable, dishonest and unsatisfying, a longing for a reckoning and repentance, a longing for limits, an adult in the room to say, that is enough. It was a longing that we might come to our senses, to our neighbors, to our own basic needs and gifts. And then the world stopped. The pandemic hit, and we were effectively put under house arrest. Masked and hand sanitized, we peered with suspicion behind locked doors at the mail carrier, the old couple walking their dog far too casually, our own mother returning a casserole dish. Step back, mother. Do not touch the doorknob. Just leave it on the doorstep, mother. The grim reaper chillingly made its way through the human population, compelling all of us not only to withdraw from public spaces, but also to reflect inwardly what is the meaning of life? What matters? Why am I living this way? Why have I wasted so much time? The, the pandemic ushered us into a liminal space, a disorienting, perilous state of unknowing, where we had to confront our relationship to self, others, technology, the past, the earth, the sacred, a period when everything unhealed within us was dredged to the surface, 
and it became unquestionably clear that the old stories of mindless consumerism, environmental exploitation, economic inequality, white body supremacy were killing us. Like a rite of passage or a well-crafted story, the pandemic carried us into a state of disorder, which all wisdom traditions believe is a necessary stage for transformation. Order, disorder, reorder. The gift of this disruption has been the uncovering of our fundamental cravings for one another, for the natural world, for family, for rest, for healing, for reconciling the divisions the old stories have kept alive. The simple, powerful format of our Writer Botter group is what keeps it alive and easy to maintain week after week. One, tune into Zoom. Two, receive a prompt or two. Three, 21 minutes of focused free writing or sometimes thought of as lightly organized chaos. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. We don't have to share it if we don't want to. Four, read, listen, and make supportive comments. Note on supportive comments. As our wise founding father, Rev. Jim, once said, we don't really need critical voices from the outside or from the group. Most of us have plenty of that kind of talk coming from our own voices in our own heads. So now it's your turn to listen to the stories dredged up from the semi-conscious minds of Mark Sletterberg, Sharon Zingery, Bart Blackstone, read by Barb Weatherhead, and Caitlin Bowley, all born from nothing but a prompt in 21 minutes. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm not myself today. I'm apparently George Hutchinson, <laughs> which is not a bad thing to be. And now I actually become Mark Sledaha, and later at the UAH meeting, I'll be Cindy Picotta. <laughs> so this is in response to a prompt, and the prompt is, a thousand words are worth a picture. Write a descriptive picture of a relative who should be remembered or detail a family story that should not be forgotten. So Mark writes, my paternal grandmother, Susan, died in 1918 of the Spanish flu. She was only 26 years old in the prime of life with a baby of 11 months who would turn out to become my father. My grandfather felt incapable of taking care of my dad and as a result, Dad was raised for several years by his grandmother until his father remarried and was able to take him back. My step-grandmother was very fond of Dad, who was about four years old when he was permanently reunited with his father. However, it was my step-grandmother's intent to destroy all evidence of my biological mother or grandmother. All photographs that she could find were destroyed. Throughout much of my life, I occasionally wondered what my biological grandmother looked like. However, as I was always reminded, all photos were non-existent. One day, about 10 years ago, my wife Marlene asked me to clean out a neglected closet area with many papers and some old family photos piled and unorganized in an old box. 
I had seen all of these old photos before. However, I failed to pay too close attention to them. But then as I was sorting them out, I came across one photo of my well-recognized great aunt sitting in a park on a sunny day, enjoying the moment with another young woman that I didn't recognize. Wait a minute, I did recognize the other woman. She had the same natural curly hair, the same facial features, and the same smile as my father. It was unmistakable. I found my grandmother. I had seen this photo at least several times in my life, but because I was led to believe that all photos of my grandmother were destroyed, it never occurred to me to look more carefully at the photo. This was a photo of two lovely sisters, taken probably around 1917. My great aunt would survive until her late 70s and my grandmother would expire a year after the photo was taken. Since then, I have been captured by the idea how often our preconceptions and expectations can so easily hide the obvious directly in front of us. Perhaps Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, author of The Little Prince, was right when he wrote, what is essential is invisible to the eye. Most of you probably don't know who I am. I am Teresa Zingari's sister, and I am a member for, sitting in the, here to cheer me on, and I am a member on Zoom from Chicago. I became involved because of COVID, and everything you've heard previously about our group is what brought me to community with all of you. And this group has helped heal and save me totally. So I'd like to share a piece. The prompt was paddle boat, rowboat, canoe, rafting rapids, water skiing, being still. Think about the water and what comes to mind. White water rafting. Never dreamed I'd even consider, let alone do it. Race down a river on an inflatable raft that could spring a leak, for God's sake. Attempt to control what said fragile structure, protecting me from death by drowning or smashing into boulders, rearing their sharp edges and bigger than life, hard, round, body-crushing selves above the roaring rapids, or lurking beneath said rapids, not in this lifetime. Because of course, it would mean the end of this lifetime, wouldn't it? Doubts assailed me, surely I was not up to the task. Only sporty types were capable of such bravery. Intellectuals or even pseudo-intellectuals were not meant to take a sliver of wood, also known as a paddle, into hand and do battle with fierce currents. It was actually a conference thing. Attendees had the option of taking a raft down part of the Willamette River. Sections were labeled something like a Category 4 rapid, but they told me I could do it. <laughs> ha! They don't know me. How could they be sure I'd make it? Sheesh. 
Yet something tantalized me, called to me. I signed up, and even more miraculously, I showed up. The rush of water, the rush of wind blowing through my hair, spray in my face, roaring in my ears, laughter. Flirting with fellow conferees as I gingerly climbed into the seemingly fragile craft. Who best to sit next to? Yes, the guy from Hawaii who surfs. He can handle this task, right? Any kind, and kind of good looking as well, so can't hurt. At least he could probably jump into the water and save me if I go overboard. Incredible rush, rush of adrenaline, rush of water, speed, flying on water. No thinking, just rushing. Rushing water, rushing mind. The guide pulls us to a calm pool while we wait for the rescue of the other boat's tour guide, who flew off the raft into the last whirlpool thingy. The risk is real. Heart and throat, we watch the rescue and breathe again. Too soon it's over. I survived. I succeeded. It felt triumphant. Too brief. I feel powerful and fragile, both alive and scared and truly happy. It was beautiful. I felt beautiful. I am more than I thought. My name is Barb Weatherhead. Uh, yes, I am still alive. I join you normally <laughs> via uh, the internet on Sunday mornings, but I'm still here. And I am reading two short pieces written by Barbara Blackstone of the writing group, uh, who passed away not too long ago. Uh, she was a dear friend in spite of the fact that she once fired me many years ago. <laughs> The prompt was an important or memorable conversation. We were in community theater together and were having a discussion about religion. I don't believe in God, he said, and my mouth fell open. You mean you can choose whether to believe in God? I asked with incredulity. I had been a religion major in college, and despite learning about different belief systems, I never thought there was a choice. Wasn't it just a natural and necessary part of being human? The second piece was uh, to write about a human adversary. Reed, he was my boss, and he didn't like having a woman who had opinions, or who asked, why are we doing that? He didn't like the fact that I had kept my birth name when I got married, saying he didn't think much of a man who couldn't get his wife to take his name. He often belittled my efforts, even when others appreciated them. 
And then he fired me. I was not deferential enough and had opinions I shouldn't have. And here I thought I was just doing my best. story to write about. <laughs> Always looking for excuses. Uh, you get to hear another one of mine. Um, the prompt was, write about someone who has been a mentor or light in your life. My beacon. Sometimes a beacon just looks like a pen light at the time. Often one, one, one often hears someone famous speaking eruditely about a figure who served as their guiding light, the beacon who helped light their path to greatness or success. Their personal hero seems to take on the cape of a superhero aura. My first thought of that person who made a real difference in my life seems ridiculously small, and yet, she pops into my mind from the recesses of my memory banks as that everyday individual who appears to be just doing their job, not realizing their impact. They show up and get through the day without realizing they have left a wake that will stretch out for, say, 67 years, rocking the boat of that shy little girl, now a senior citizen. From time to time, when doubt sets in, the self-talk insisting, you can't do that, don't even try it. That little wake will rock my boat, reminding me of the day I did do the unthinkable. Unthinkable to me, anyway. That me was seven and newly moved from small town Texas to the intimidating city of New York. Why, these kids had even been in school a whole year longer than me. We did not have kindergarten where I came from. The pen light, who would burn brightly for me for, for low these many years, was a short little lady, Mrs. Shellstock. I'm no good with names generally and cannot recall any other grade school teacher's names but Mrs. Shellstock's name is burned into my mind through the, though the spelling of her name keeps changing. I can never remember. She was my teacher, but one lesson was likely not in her plan. I suspect she may have in some ways seen herself as a builder of effective and self-assured humans, but I will never know. What I do know is that on the day of the great spelling bee, Mrs. Shellstock created the moment when I first believed that I just might be capable of doing big things. Oh, it really was a little thing that made a big difference for this shy little girl. Mrs. Shellstock made me captain of one of the spelling teams. No, my team did not win, we lost. Every time one of our team members misspelled a word, the other team got to pick 
one of our best spellers, except for the captain. Finally, I was the only one left on my team. The other side cheered loudly while my shoulders dropped dejectedly. Mrs. Shellstock then introduced a new rule. Let's see if Sharon can win some people back. And I did. At the end of the day, my team won. Now, I know I did not win by myself, but by the end of the day, I believed I could succeed in the face of impossible odds. Mrs. Shellstock, in that one exercise, helped me believe that I could be a winner, that I could and should attack what others say cannot be done because I just might accomplish the unexpected. prompt here is write about a gift that you received. Mark writes, I was 10 years old. Christmas day was well below zero and that didn't even factor in the wind chill. However, I had just received a pair of brand new hockey skates and I wanted to waste no time trying them out, even on a sub-zero Christmas morning. I went down to the local skating rink and of course, no one else was foolish enough to be outside in this weather. The silence and serenity were like a religious experience as I skated around the rink in my first pair of skates that were not hand-me-downs. This was the 1950s and the age of greasers. Our neighborhood area was loaded with greasers and one of them, Mike J in particular, was feared the most. He was always dressed in black leather jackets, had a classic ducktail haircut rode a motorcycle with a cigarette always hanging out of his mouth, carried a switchblade, and was picked up by the police fairly often for apparently petty crimes. Though he was only about 16, he was well-renowned, make that infamous, for a mean disposition and many neighborhood rumbles. Those of us who were younger and weaker knew well enough to keep our distance. Imagine my surprise when Mike shows up at the skating rink black leather jacket and ducktail, and figure skates. What, a greaser in figure skates? I didn't know whether to be petrified or just to be shocked. He was accompanied by his much younger sister. I stood and gazed at Mike skating as he pirouetted and performed leaps and spins with the greatest of artistic ease while his little sister watched, giggled, and admired. After he put on a skating performance that I had never seen before in my neighborhood, nor could ever be imagined by the likes of a person like him, he skated over to his inexperienced sister. He took her by both hands and proceeded to guide her in apparently her first skating lesson. Since I couldn't seem to stop staring at the two of them, after a while the little girl struggled and stumbled toward where I was standing and after falling a couple of times, managed to get up and make her way up to me. Then with an ear-to-ear -ear grin, she said, that's my big brother, Mike, and he's teaching me how to skate. As her brother stood fairly close by, all fear went away. I suddenly realized that there is oftentimes an unknown depth and dimension to each one of us, 
and that all too often, or that all too often is hidden away, but waiting to emerge and be seen. Hi, I'm Caitlin Boley. Um, I am writing or reading you a, something from a prompt that said, write something about our write about it writing group. <laughs> All my life, I've hungered to write. All my life, the concept of sharing my words and thoughts with others has paralyzed my tongue and stayed my hand, despite evidence to the contrary regarding my tongue. It is far easier for me to speak of less important topics than to risk a deep truth. So writing group seemed a safe, supportive baby step. The prompts lead us each in different directions, and as the, as the pandemic began, it seemed like a safer alternative to the circle suppers my parents used to attend. I keep coming because I enjoy the people and the fellowship. Some weeks I sleep through the talk on Sunday and watch it later, but I usually end up at writing group. Some weeks I don't write anything at all. I just use the hour as a grounding experience, like joys and concerns, to remember, despite physical evidence to the contrary, I am not alone. What do you do at writing class? My mom asked during my basement sabbatical at her house during COVID. Well, it's not actually a class, I just think of it as such, but we write on or off a topic for about 20 minutes, and then if we want, we share a writing. I go back each time for the fellowship and connections and to learn about the world through my fellow writers' experiences and to remind myself I am not alone. Thanks for listening and being part of the group for the day. For those who are willing to enter further into the woods, we offer you a prompt, some paper to write on, and 21 minutes after the service. Here's the prompt. There are people whose faces, when I see them here at FUS, light up my own. Write about that person and how they have that effect on you. Paper and pen are on the tables. We've set up some quiet space for writing after the service in the back, or at these tables here, we encourage you to share your writing, or just take some notes and speak about it if you, if you want to after the service during social hour. Thanks. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.